Welcome, Lakeshore. We are so happy that you're here today. Christ is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed, and we come together to celebrate. Welcome to our Smyrna campus. We're so glad that you're with us today. Anybody connecting with us online today, thank you for joining in with us in the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest day in all of human history that is being celebrated because it signifies the thing that gives us all reason to have the hope that we have in Christ. In the 1950s, a guy named Earl Palmer was a student at Princeton Theological Seminary. And at the semester break, he and his buddies decided they would drive to California and uh, from New Jersey, where the school was. They would drive all the way across the country and have a, a good break out there on the West Coast. And they decided they would divide up the driving among the group and have everybody take turns so they could drive all the way through the night and get there more quickly. So they started out on their journey and uh, were, uh, had one driver that started and then they switched out to another driver. And that driver in the middle of the night saw that they needed to get gas and he got off on an exit and he had to make a U-turn when he got off the exit because only one station was open that time of night and he, he went circled back and went to that station. So they filled up the car with gas. Uh, then he woke up another guy to take over the driving he got into the back seat to go to sleep, and the other guy started out, not realizing that the previous driver had made a U-turn. He got back on the expressway going east instead of west, and he drove that way for hours. Now, there were many signs along the way that should have alerted him to the fact that he was going east, like the expressway signs, and, and like some of the uh, traffic coming the other way would be buses that had destinations going west. And he was going the opposite way. But none of those caught his attention. They, they didn't register with him that he was going the wrong way. Until after a few hours, he saw the sunrise. And as he saw the sunrise, it was a sign too big to miss. He knew he was going the wrong direction. So he quickly got off the next exit, turned around, and headed back. And the discussion the rest of the way out to California was whether they had lost three hours or six hours or nine hours in the process. The correct answer is six, by the way. Well, some 2,000 years ago, there was another group of seminary students of sorts who were confused and baffled. They were wondering what was going on, and they were questioning if they had gone the right way. And they wondered if they would ever discover the real truth, the real answer. And they had seen signs all along the way that made them think this was the way to go, to follow this teacher that they had been following, but now there had been this death. And they couldn't explain it. They didn't understand it. And more than anything else, they needed a sign. And the sun rose. And that sign was so evident to them. It was so much a clear answer to their questions. 
That yes, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one they should have been following. And when you see the resurrection, when you see that sign, when you understand what it means, it can change the whole direction of your life. It changes everything for everyone when you come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what we celebrate here today. We have been in a series over the past several weeks called Three Days That Changed the World. It is centered in a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1, where Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Those events happened within a three-day period in the history of the world, and those three days changed everything for everyone who would believe in Christ. The resurrection is the most important of all the teaching, of all the doctrine, of all the the philosophy that's ever been espoused by any teacher, anywhere, anytime. The resurrection is the most important subject to come to grips with. Because if it's true, then it matters for everybody for eternity. And if it's not true, we're wasting our time here this morning. It all rises and falls, literally. On the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why today I want us to examine the resurrection more closely. And the first thing we're going to start with is the fact that the resurrection is foundational for us as Christians. It is foundational for our belief system. It's foundational, first of all, because it was predicted before it ever happened. Uh, Remember here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he uses a phrase... That is critical to his argument supporting the resurrection. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. And what's that next phrase? According to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. What? According to the Scriptures. Now today when we read according to the Scriptures, we think of the Bible as we have it today. But they didn't have the New Testament yet when that was written. It had not been written and recorded and put together yet when that was recorded, when these events took place. You see, the New Testament is a record of those things that happened that he's talking about. And that record wasn't there yet for them. The scriptures he's talking about are the old, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures that included the prophecies of the resurrection of a Messiah who was going to come. He says, all of these things happened according to the scriptures that had been written hundreds of years before the events took place. Yet they happened exactly as they were written by these prophets those hundreds of years before. Now, the reason that's so important is that it gives credibility to their claim that Jesus is actually who he claimed to be. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest areas of evidence we have to support our faith. I say this a lot. I am always amazed at how many people will will criticize Christians and say, you've got this blind faith and you don't really have any evidence to support your faith. Friends, we have so much evidence upon which to base our faith. 
And one of the main areas of evidence is how detailed prophecies were fulfilled. Listen, over 300 messianic prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus in great detail. All of them written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. That's powerful evidence that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. And that the scriptures are true and reliable for us as the teaching for our lives. Jesus himself in Matthew 16, 21, it tells us this. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection in detail. How it was going to happen, who, at whose hands it was going to happen. And he told them in advance, this is what's going to happen to me. And it happened exactly as he said. Friends, it is, it is supported by evidence. It was predicted in detail and it happened just like they said it would. It's also, it's also foundational, foundational for the faith because it's distinctive. Only Christianity points to an empty tomb. Think about every other religion in the world. You can name any of them. And the leading character in that faith, in that religious system, is rotting in the grave today. Every one of them. Except Christianity. Christianity doesn't point to a grave and have a shrine of, of a body that's there. Christianity has an empty tomb that we point to. For the one we put our faith in. Our trust in. Now, here's the reason that's such a big deal. If the tomb is empty, then Jesus wasn't like all those other religious leaders. He wasn't like all those other teachers, philosophers. See, a lot of people want to, want to make Jesus a good teacher and a nice guy and all of that. But friends, that's impossible. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, he was a liar. He couldn't have been just a good teacher. But we can point to an empty tomb and say that he rose from the dead. I love, uh, if we continue on in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a powerful chapter there where Paul teaches us about the importance of the resurrection. He says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise them if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. pitied. We need to know that as Christians, if Christ did not rise from the dead, it is of no comfort at all that he had some nice teachings. Other religions have nice teachings too. If he did not rise from the dead, it doesn't matter that he loved people well because other Christian uh, religious leaders loved people well too. If he did not rise from the dead, it doesn't matter that, that, that he was, was really good at reaching out to people that nobody else would reach out to. Uh, there were other religious leaders who taught that too. 
But if Christ rose from the dead, then that separates him from every other teacher that's ever lived, that's ever walked on the face of the earth. Because all of them are rotting in the grave today. And that would make his teaching more authoritative than any other religious teachings in the history of the world. That's why it is so foundational to our faith. Here's another reason. In Romans 10 and verse 9, Paul said this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says belief in the resurrection is key. It's vital to your salvation. If you don't believe that, if you can't believe that, there is no hope of salvation. That's how important this subject is. That's how important this event is to all people everywhere in the world. It is foundational to our faith. Which leads me to the second thing I want us to see today, and that's this. The resurrection is believable. I know it seems unbelievable that somebody would come back after they were dead, but it is believable. I want us today to break it down a little bit into what I call a recipe for the resurrection. Okay? What ingredients do we need to have for resurrection to take place? Well, the first thing we got to have is a physical death, right? In order for something to be raised, it has to be killed first. It has to die. So the first ingredient to the resurrection is a physical death. Well, there are those who try to claim that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Now, we dealt with this earlier in this series and a, a message we had on his death on the cross there. But, but I just want to remind you that these soldiers that crucified Jesus were a, uh, a unit of the Roman army, which is the elite military force of that day. Resurrection wasn't new to them. They did it all the time. It was the capital punishment of their day. So they... Oftentimes, I mean, crucifixion was, was common to them. They did it all the time. So they, they crucified people regularly. They, they knew how to do this and how to kill people on the cross. And so they testified that this body was dead. Look in John 19, beginning with verse 33. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, these are the soldiers, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. They knew how to test to see if the body was dead. They thrust the spear into his side, up into his rib cage, into the heart chamber. That's how they would test it. And when they saw blood and water flow out together, they knew this body was dead. Now, scientifically, I'm not a medical student. I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but I am told by medical professionals that that only happens when the heart, uh, uh, the sac around the heart and all is ruptured and nobody could survive that. Everyone would die from that. And so these soldiers knew that Jesus was dead. That's why they didn't have to break his legs. Now, they did this all the time. They were professionals, if you want to use that term, at killing and so they had a dead body, and they knew they had a dead body. Mark 15, verse 39. Listen to this Roman centurion, his words. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. They knew they had a dead body. They knew that Jesus had died. In order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. And they verified that Jesus' body was a dead body. 
They took it down. They put it in the tomb. They wrapped it up. They prepared it for burial because he was dead. And they put that dead body into the tomb. And then they sealed up that tomb and guarded that tomb because they knew they had the dead body of Jesus in that tomb. Now, the reason it was so important for the Jews for him to be guarded was they didn't want any possibility of any chance that somebody might steal that body and then claim that he had risen from the dead because they knew they had a dead body. If they could keep that dead body in place, they could end all of this speculation about Jesus being the Messiah. They knew that. And so they made sure they had that dead body secure. So the ingredients start with a dead body. We've got that. And then it has to include then that body coming back to life again. A bodily resurrection would have to take place, right? How do we know that Jesus really had a bodily resurrection? That he really did in that body have life again? And the reason is, we have eyewitness testimony to it. In John 20, verse 27, how many of you have heard of who we call Doubting Thomas? You heard of Doubting Thomas? Yeah. I think he gets a bad rap. We could say Doubting Peter, Doubting John, all the apostles. They all doubted, right? Thomas doubted too. And here's the problem Thomas had. Jesus, after he was risen, appeared in a room where the disciples were. And they all got to see him that night except for Thomas. He wasn't there that night. He missed the appointment on his calendar. He didn't get Google Reminder or anything. So he missed it. And because he wasn't there that night, the other disciples were telling him, Jesus was here and we saw him. We saw the the scars in his hand and his side. We know it was him. And Thomas said, I won't believe until I can put my hand in his side and in his hands where he was crucified and see for myself. But before you get too critical of Thomas, wouldn't you need some good proof that somebody had really risen from the dead? Of course. Well, in John 20 and verse 27, Jesus appears to Thomas. And he says to Thomas, I love this about Jesus. Instead of saying, I can't believe you didn't believe already. Oh, you know, he didn't do that. Here's what he said. Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. See, Jesus wanted us to have the evidence. He went to great lengths to be sure we had the evidence of totally convinced and convicted eyewitness testimony that he had truly risen from the dead in the body in which he had been crucified. The evidence was right there for all of them to see. And it wasn't just Thomas. You see, another reason it's so important for us to understand this, that it's so believable, is because we have lots of credible witnesses to support it. Many credible witnesses. Paul talked about it here in 1 Corinthians 15, remember? He said, what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. He was buried, raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. But it goes on in verse 5 to say this, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's name, All right, so he's talking about Peter there. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. 
You see the eyewitnesses are adding up, aren't they? And then he says, most of whom are still living, though some who have fallen asleep. See, when he writes this to the church, he says, most of those witnesses are still alive today. What's he saying? You can ask them yourself. They're still alive and well. They'll tell you what they saw, what they experienced. These aren't people you can't contact. These aren't people that that you can't go to and, and ask them about it. They're still all around, these witnesses. If you were lying, I don't think you would encourage people to go ask them and find them, would you? It says after, after that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, Paul, also, as to one abnormally born. I like how this is broken down, this list of witnesses that Paul gives us. He says, first of all, he appeared to Cephas or Peter. He had a personal encounter with Peter. Why does he specifically just mention Peter, single him out? Well, I think it's obvious, right? When you read the encounter he had with Peter, Peter had denied Jesus just like Jesus said he was going to when they had taken him and put him on trial. Three times, remember, he denied him. And when Jesus saw Peter again and talked to Peter, what did he do? He said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times he allowed Peter to say, to be a witness to the fact that he loves and believes in the resurrected Lord. He was restoring Peter into that right relationship again with him. That's the heart of Jesus, that even when we struggle with our faith, he gives us the evidence and the testimony, and he gives us the opportunity to come back to him and that relationship with him that he wanted us to have all along. He is a gracious, gracious Savior. But notice also it says he appeared to James. That James would be the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you talk about somebody that struggled with the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, think about your brother telling you he's the Messiah. Even your stepbrother, right? Claiming that he's the Messiah, that he's God, right? Sometimes I thought my brother thought he was God, but I didn't really think deep down he actually believed he was God, right? I have two brothers, and, and sometimes we would argue about, you know, who mom loved best and all that. And, and, and these brothers had rivals like that, but, but James really struggled with this idea that the kid he grew up with was actually the Messiah, the Savior. And so Jesus appeared specifically to James. Now we know James came to faith in Jesus. And the New Testament book of James is written by this James that is mentioned in that verse. A great witness to the Messiah, the Savior. You see, he wanted to be sure James was convinced. And he gave him all the evidence he needed to be convinced. Then it says to the twelve, of course, the whole group together when he appeared to them. But those 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, I mean, hundreds of people saw Jesus. We have a record that for 40 days after the resurrection, he he appeared with them. He spent time with them. He ate with them. He cooked fish. He barbecued on the beach with them. He gave them plenty of evidence that this was really him in the body, risen from the dead, so that they could be the witnesses that he wanted them to be. 
He allowed them to examine his wounds. They were all eyewitnesses. And here's the thing about what makes them such credible witnesses. They all went to their graves with the same testimony. He's alive. We saw him. We spent time with him. He is the Messiah. We have historical record from the early Christian writers of the martyrdom of all the apostles. The only one who didn't die violently was John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, to the island there where he died of old age there. All the others were executed, and not one of them changed their testimony that Jesus was alive. They had seen him. Now, here's what makes that so credible. None of them had anything to gain by holding on to that testimony unless it was true. All of them gave their lives for that testimony. Now, if any of them had had any doubt at all, under the threat of torture and death, don't you think at least one of them would have broken and said, no, it didn't really happen. It's not true. We didn't really see him. We made up the whole story. Don't you think to save their own skin, at least one of them would have broken? They had nothing to gain by testifying that Jesus had risen from the dead. But they had everything to lose by testifying that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they all kept the same story to death. Friends, I don't know anyone, any event in history where all the people involved under the threat of persecution continued to support a lie all the way through. I don't know any case in history where that's ever happened. So we have credible witnesses to the resurrection. We have all the ingredients that we need to have. We had a dead body. We had the body appear again alive after it had been dead. We have credible eyewitnesses to what had happened there. Which leads me to the last thing I want us to focus on today. In light of all the evidence, here's what it means for us. It means your resurrection is inevitable too. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then this is not all there is. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you know the the YOLO thing we've been doing for a while now? You only live once? That's true, but it's forever. You only die once, but you live forever. Here's what we miss. It means everybody lives forever. Not just Christians. Not just the people who believe in the resurrection. It means life goes on after the grave. And the scripture says it goes on in one of two places. And it's clear. I know it's not politically correct for me to do this, but okay. (laughs) There is heaven And there is hell. And we're all going to exist forever in one of those two places, according to the scriptures. These scriptures that have been proven to be reliable, these scriptures that we have all the evidence to support the teaching because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they teach us that after we die on this earth, we are going to be raised, all of us. In John 5... Verse 28 and 29, Jesus said these words. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming 
when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That means everybody's going to have a resurrection. Followers of Christ and those who don't follow Christ. In Hebrews 9, 27, it says, Just as people are destined to die once, you only live once, no, you only die once. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Everyone's going to die and everyone's going to be raised and we're going to be raised to face judgment according to the scriptures. Now, why can we believe that's true? Because Jesus has proven that there's life on the other side of the grave. That's why. He's, he's proven it beyond any shadow of a doubt that there's life on the other side of the grave. And we're going to spend that life somewhere. And according to the one who rose from the dead, it will either be with him and that place that's been prepared or it will be with Satan and that place prepared for him. You see, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, the scripture says. So there'll be two places, one with Christ, one separated from God with Satan and that place of punishment. But everybody's going to live forever in one of those two places. See, we throw around the term eternal life like that's only a thing for Christians. And it is in the right sense of eternal life as God wants it to be. But everybody lives forever somewhere. And Christ died on that cross so that we would have a choice about where we're going to live. Here's the thing about standing in judgment before God. The wages of sin is death. Right? So if we stand before God in judgment with our sins then we are lost. But if we stand before God covered by the blood of Jesus, then we're saved. You see, the only way we could spend eternity in the presence of God is for our sin to be covered, for our sin to be paid for in full. And only the payment that Jesus made on the cross is adequate to pay for that in full. Otherwise, we have to pay for sins ourselves when we stand in judgment. People have such a warped view of the judgment as if we can stand in, God, in front of God at judgment day and say, but I was a good person. I would give people the shirt off my back. But the question is not going to be, were you a good person? The question is going to be, did you have sin? And what's the answer to that question? Yes, we've all sinned. You see, one sin is all it takes to condemn us. And we all have plenty more than one, right? All of us. But it would only take one to condemn us. So if we have one sin unforgiven as we stand in judgment, then we're lost. But if we have the covering of the blood of Jesus, there is no sin on our record anymore at all. We're washed clean and made new by the blood of Jesus. Here's what I like to think about. As a Christian... We're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying going to the land of the living. That's what we need to think about. We're going to the land of the living when we leave this place as followers of Christ. The question Jesus asked Martha, I really want to go back to in John 11. Remember, Jesus had come to the graveside of Lazarus. Martha and her sister Mary are upset with Jesus because he didn't come sooner, and Lazarus has been dead four days now. And 
Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This is before he goes to the cross, before he goes in the tomb, before he rises again. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's the question. Because believing in the resurrection changes everything. We've all got a choice to make. And here's the choice. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. And those are the only choices that we have today. Either he lied about who he was intentionally, which means he can't be Lord, he can't be Savior, he can't be a good teacher because a good teacher wouldn't lie to you like that. Or he was a lunatic. He was delusional. He believed something about himself that wasn't true. You know a lot of delusional people. Don't point at anybody. <laughs> you know, the people, they're a legend in their own mind, right? They're delusional. He could have been delusional, and if he was, then we don't have any reason to put our faith in him. And he's not a good teacher if he's a lunatic, if he's delusional, okay? He, again, he's not a good teacher then. You can't accept that. There's only one other option. That is, he's Lord. That word Lord in Scripture means ruler. He has all authority over all things for all time, including death and life and sin and salvation. He's the only one who can offer you the life that you want. That's why Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 with some powerful statements. Let's, let's focus on this as we close today. Listen in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 50. Listen to Paul's words. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, he's writing to Christians here. He says, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Friends, there's only one thing worth giving your life to, your energy to, your, your effort to, and that is the eternal things of God. Everything else is temporary. Everything else falls away. Everything else is destroyed. That's why the scripture asked this question, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? There's nothing in this world worth losing your soul for. There's everything to gain by putting your faith, your trust, and your confidence in a Lord who conquered sin and death for you. And that's why we celebrate Easter as the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, Fathers, we come before you on this resurrection day of celebration. We know that this this event signifies to us that all of us will one day 
cross over from this life to the next. And all of us, everyone in this room, everyone outside this place today will stand before you one day in judgment. And on that day, everyone is going to cry out to Jesus. Because then and only then will everyone realize he was truly the way and the truth and the life. I pray that if there's anyone here today who has come to that place where they are ready to place their faith, their, their trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, as the one who could give them life today, that today they could come repenting of sin, confessing the name of Jesus. They could be obedient in Christian baptism. They could be buried with Christ. They could be raised to brand new life in Christ today, claiming your promises, claiming that Jesus is Lord. Father, may this be the day that your spirit convicts their heart and they are drawn to take the steps of obedience that you called them to take so that nobody leaves this place without the hope of the resurrected Lord. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.